Again, good morning to everyone, and welcome to the Bible class of Midway Church. We're glad that you're here. Many that uh, we know of our family here are uh, not well at this time, and we'll be mentioning them later on, but it's good to see your faces here this morning. Turn to John 15. And we'll resume our study where we left off last week, John chapter 15. And just by quick review, remember that uh, we said that the content of uh, John 15 uh, picks up with Jesus and the apostles leaving the upper room and beginning to make their way toward uh, Gethsemane eventually. And uh, as they go along the way, it seems that Jesus has a, a lot on his heart. He knows that just within hours that he is going to be unjustly tried, condemned, and crucified on the cross. And so he has a lot uh, in a concentrated form that he's wanting to uh, share with the apostles, remind them of teachings already. And so that's where we are. We notice that the chapter naturally falls within three categories, uh, and all of them have to do with relationships. Relationships of the believer or Christians uh, to different ones. And the first was in verses 1 through 11, the relationship of the Christian to Jesus. And this, of course, involved the allegory of uh, the vine and the branches. And then the second relationship picks up with verse 12 through 17, the relationship of the Christian to each other. And then lastly, verses 18 through 27, the relationship of the Christian to the world. And last Sunday, we... uh, Almost finished the first section, verses 1 through 11, as we talked about the uh, vine and the branches and uh, the application of it. We mentioned that uh, there is a resemblance between the physical vine and branches in the imagery of uh, husbandry or vine dressing, uh, the raising of grapes in vineyards, and that those uh, five similarities that both require the right stock, the vine, uh, both require the right vine dresser. Of course, Jesus is the true vine in verse 1, and also in verse 1, the right vine dresser, and that is God. And then three, the right method of pruning in verses 2 through 3, where he talks about every branch, uh, the live branches being cut back for growth and the dead branches being cut off. And then we looked at uh, the fourth similarity, the right contact in verse 4, talking about uh, abide in me and I in you and we talked quite a bit about uh, the, uh, the concept of being in Christ. And that's a very deep and profound concept, especially that the Apostle Paul uses throughout his epistles. 
Uh, uh, but then we got into the fifth point of similarity, and that is uh, much fruit in verses 5 through 11. So it uh, involves, you have to have the right harvest, and that, of course, is, is fruit. Verse 2 and mentions uh, the progression, fruit, and then also in verse 2, more fruit, and then eventually in verse 5, much fruit. And so you see the progression there. And that is what is expected. And this is the point that uh, we had to stop last Sunday. We'll pick back up today and try to, try to finish. Uh, Let's just read for a refresher, verses 5 through 11. John 15, beginning with verse 5 and going through 11. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, also I have loved you. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. And so we were talking about there has to be the right harvest, uh, the spiritual vine and branches, Jesus Christ, and we as believers or Christians abiding in him, the whole purpose is to bear fruit, and that being much fruit, we are to be fruitful. We noticed last uh, Sunday in verse 6 that non, uh, non-fruit-bearing Christians are like dead branches that are cut off and destroyed. And then verse 7, we talked about that fruitfulness is implied in a prayer life that brings answers. And we, we noted, well, first of all, I think from other teachings in Scripture, it's obvious that this doesn't mean that uh, anything in the world that we want to ask God for that he will grant unto us in, uh, from our prayers. But of course, as we ask according to God's will, as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, as Christians, we are trying our best to obey the will of God. In that context, our prayers will be answered. They're always answered, of course. Sometimes it's no, sometimes it's yes, but always answered. But here, I think in verse 7, uh, fruitfulness is implied in a prayer life that brings answers. A person truly in Christ, asking in harmony with the Father's will, will have his prayers answered. Now, let's begin with verse 8, and uh, from this point is new material for us. 
In verse 8, you notice that he says, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, so will you be my disciples. The abundant fruit that we produce in Christ will glorify God. And that's our purpose in a nutshell on earth. It's our purpose for being here this morning to worship. It's to glorify God. But not only is our spiritual worship to glorify God, our fruit that we produce, our good works, our life that we live before God uh, is abundant fruit, or it should be. And this glorifies God. Uh, to use a worn-out phrase, but I think it applies here, this is what it's all about. Our lives, our existence, is to bring glory to God. Notice verse 9 and verse 11. As the Father loved me, so also I have loved you. Abide in my love. And then verse 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. So here, the, I think we see that uh, the right harvest means that uh, our fruit is characterized by love and joy. That's the characteristic of our fruit in whatever way you might want to describe it or observe it. It's characterized by love and by joy. So says the scripture here. Then verse 10 again. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Here is the most important Point, and that is that fruitfulness is manifested in obedience. Obedience. This is a sure mark of the believer, just as this obedience is a mark of the unbeliever. Obedience. And so the relationship between Christians and Christ is really the same as that between Christ and the Father. We really do show our love to God by obeying His commands. Over and over in the Scripture, we, we see this. You, you say you love me? Keep my commandments. Simple. Obedience. Uh, there's no way to, to get around it. Uh, I enjoy at 7.30 every morning tuning in to the Huntsville Station and watching In Search of the Lord's Way with uh, Phil Sanders. I uh, used to be uh, Cliff Lyon uh, before he passed away several years ago. But that's an excellent uh, program, very professional. Uh, I don't know what happened this morning, but in, uh, it wasn't In Search of the Lord's Way. It was another uh, denominational uh, program and the speaker was, was very good. Uh, he spoke from 1 Samuel about Hannah and the child that she prayed for. And eventually her prayer was answered. Very good lesson, but you can guess how it ended. 
It ended by him saying that uh, if you will truly take Christ into your heart as your Lord and Savior and repeat after me this prayer, Lord Jesus, I'm sorry that I have sinned against you. I want to... Uh, I want to do better. I want to live for you. Come into my heart and I will accept you as my Lord and Savior. And he said, if you pray this prayer in sincerity, you are saved. No mention of the command for baptism. It never ceases to amaze me. Uh, and I'm sure the same is true with you how that uh, people can talk about obeying God's commands and then one of the most clear commands in all of God's word is totally ignored, not even mentioned. How can that be? Well, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, all of my commandments. And so that is a characteristic of the right kind of harvest of our fruit Bearing. I liked uh, Brother Muzzolongo's uh, summary. I haven't really followed uh, his comments in how I've developed this lesson thus far, but uh, I think that uh, if you go online and follow the uh, lessons, I think some of you are. Uh, generally, we've been following his outline in the study of John. He has a good summary, though, of this section of chapter 15. Uh, six points. He says, in summary of the vine and branches allegory and how it applies to us today, he says, you become a branch by believing and obeying the word of Christ. Two, you remain a branch, and produce fruit by continuing to believe and obey the words of Christ. And then number three, the more you believe and obey, the more fruit you produce. Number four, the less you believe and obey, the less you produce, and the more you risk being cut away and destroyed. And five, the more you believe and obey, the greater power your prayers have in being answered. And then number six, the bearing of much fruit glorifies God. That's a pretty good summary of these first 11 verses of John 15. Um, after last Sunday's uh, lesson and some conversation I had with some of you, uh, seems that we should have a little bit more regarding the application of the spiritual vine and branches uh, and how God prunes us today uh, from this uh, allegory. However, as I developed those thoughts, it became probably a two-Sunday lesson in and of itself. And I'm in rotation with three other brothers uh, in teaching this class, and it would just take too much time. But what I have done, I've uh, put these thoughts together. 
just on about one page, a little over one page, how God accomplishes the spiritual pruning of the branches today. And I've made several copies of this, and I'll put on the uh, back table back there, and if you uh, so desire, you can take one of these. And maybe at a future date, this uh, can be presented in a formal way. But anyway, uh, we will leave that first section as it is for right now. Uh, I'd like to get on through uh, the second section and then finish up next, uh, next Sunday, uh, if that's possible. We will see. All right. Let's go on then to the second uh, relationship in uh, chapter 15. That is the relationship of Christians to each other. Jesus wanted to emphasize to his apostles, to his disciples, the supreme importance of being in him the true vine, thus the allegory here. And that establishes our relationship with Christ. But then we look to a more horizontal relationship. Immediately, that is our relationship to one another as Christians. And this will cover verses 12 through 17. So let's go ahead and read those verses, and then we will get into it verse by verse. Uh, beginning with verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask in of my Father in my name, he will give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. So Jesus now discusses with his apostles the relationship that they are to have among each other. This is talking about you and me, fellow Christians in the family of God. What is our relationship to each other? What is it to be? Well, I think we all remember that within the apostles, even at this point, at the very end of Christ's ministry, there were still a lot of misunderstanding of the apostles, of Jesus' teachings. There were still differences and jealousies within the apostles. You remember the bickering back and forth about who's going to sit on the Lord's right hand and left hand in the coming kingdom. And Jesus knew that uh, if they were to maintain an adequate testimony for him that they could only do so if they were unified. If they went out with the great commission that is to come as a unit. 
And so unity here is what's being stressed. And so for this reason, he gave them what some have referred to as the 11th commandment. Uh, If we go back to chapter 13 and verse 34, there Jesus referred to this same commandment as uh, the new commandment. So let's look at it again, verse 12. This is my commandment, or my new commandment, that you love one another. And there's not a period there. There's the word as. As I have loved you. So this uh, new commandment uh, is, if you look at it in the grammar, and I'm not an English teacher, but I understand that this is a comparative clause. Love one another as I have loved you. And this comparative clause, uh, love one another how as I have loved you. And this gives the standard by which all real love can be measured and understood. In context here, Um, it may refer to the love that uh, Jesus has already manifested uh, to his uh, disciples and before the world. Uh, Already in his ministry, uh, his love for people, for mankind, especially uh, his apostles and believers, has been manifested in many ways. Or perhaps it could be referring to his coming sacrifice on the cross for the entire world. And then, of course, more likely it is both. Referring to both how he's already shown his love and will show his love on the cross. So our relationship with one another in the church must be this same kind of love. If we talk about it being the same kind of love that Jesus manifested toward us, we're talking about agape love. And you've heard this before in lessons, that that is a Greek word that shows the ultimate degree of love. It is sacrificial love. It is uh, love that sees first the interest of others and what is in the other's best interest before my own, this kind of love. Sacrificial love. And so, this is the new commandment that he gives them. Uh, We could spend a lot of time talking about in what sense this is uh, a commandment that hadn't really been mentioned before or very much and why it would be a new commandment. Uh, But I think, suffice it to say, that uh, it's a love that's been there from the very beginning. But through the process, through the ages, uh, coming up to uh, Jesus' time and the cross, uh, it hasn't really been revealed in its purest and highest sense. And so now he's wanting to cement this into his apostles' uh, being. You've got to love one another, not just in word only, 
not just in a fraternal sense, but you've got to love one another as you've seen me love you. Think about it. How have I loved you during these past three years? That's how you are to love one another. You go back to uh, chapter 13 again. And the uh, episode in the upper room, and they've just come from this. They're on their way toward Gethsemane, so this is in the recent past. He showed his love by being willing to do a servant's task. He washed their feet. Nobody else was humble enough to do it or Jesus did. So this is the commandment. And then verses 13 through 16, as we continue this thought, I think we see uh, at least four elements of Christian love. Four elements of Christian love for one another. The first one there is in verse 13, and that is sacrifice. And again, look at it. In verse 13, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's sacrifice. Uh, This marks the highest achievement of human love. And we honor those who have exhibited this. In wartime, we see it time and again, how a soldier... Uh, might throw himself in the uh, path of a bullet to save his commander. Uh, Someone sacrificing themselves, knowing that they're going to be killed, but in doing so, some other's life will be saved. And and we see this. And it's the highest uh, achievement of human love. And thank goodness we can still see that uh, in the world today to some degree. So somebody might argue, well, what was so great then about Jesus' sacrifice uh, if this is nothing more than we see in humankind already uh, at various times? Well, divine love went far beyond this. And I think you know where I'm going with this because Christ died for even his enemies. Turn with me over to Romans 5. And this was used last Sunday as a devotional before the Lord's Supper. But I think it uh, shows very well in Paul's writing how that uh, Jesus' love, this divine love, even goes beyond uh, this highest achievement of human love. Romans 5, beginning with verse 6 and going through 11. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps For a good one, someone would even dare to die. This is that highest achievement of human love. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. While while we were without strength, while we were still sinners, while we were enemies, while we were still in defiance, holding up our fists before God and saying, I refuse to acknowledge you or to obey you. Christ still loved me enough to die for me on the cross. That's divine love. On the cross, you recall his words. Very ones that have sped on him, cursed him, mocked him, bore false witness against him, put him on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, we can't love one another to the same degree as Christ, but we are to strive for that. Love one another as I have loved you. Our love for one another is the badge, the sign to the world that we are God's family, that we are God's people. It's one thing to put a plaque on our building out here saying Church of Christ or on the sign out here. There's nothing wrong with that. But what really advertises who we are is how people see us in relationship to one another. I remember when we first went to Romania and we were getting to know the small church there and beginning our work with them. Uh, the church met in an old converted house inside a small compound. I mentioned last week that it was in this compound that they had the grape arbor that Kay used to try to harvest every time we went in. But uh, immediately on either side of us and behind us were high-rise apartments. Everybody in those uh, windows could look out and see that little compound down there with that house in it where Christians met for worship. And I remember one time early on being there and uh, two of our members came in and one had uh, somewhat awed against the other one and they, they almost came to, to fist there in that compound until... <laughs> Through my feeble efforts, I finally kind of toned down the situation. But for all of those people looking down there, okay, Church of Christ, and here they are, man, look at them go at it. Uh, you think that we were going to have some of those neighbors in our assembly for worship? Very unlikely. And likewise with us. We go out from this place and we're in the world. And probably I'm getting ahead of my little self a little bit and talking about the last category of our relationship to the world. 
But think about it. We are together here on Sundays and on Wednesday nights and other special uh, occasions. But then the rest of the week, we're out there in the world working uh, side by side with people of the world. They know us. They know who we are. They should. Something's wrong if they, after a while, they don't know who you are and where you attend worship. We're advertising. We are the placard of the Church of Christ. And it's just like the old-timey uh, board that a person would be hired to have advertising on the front and back, and he would march up and down the street in the cities for a diner or something. We advertise. And it's our love for one another that is the main by. By this, y'all men, know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And here Jesus is talking about this kind of love. It's the kind of love as I have loved you. And that's the relationship that we are to have. So this first element of Christian love is sacrifice. We should be willing to sacrifice ourselves for one another. Verse 14 shows the second element of Christian love. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. And that's intimacy in verse 14. An element of Christian love for one another is intimacy. Uh, this is illustrated by Jesus' contrast of the words friends and servants, or bondservant, or slave. And it's shown by sharing with them the secrets of heaven. Look at verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And so Jesus showed them his love by sharing with them the secrets of heaven. And I see a parallel in our relationship to one another as Christians today in the same way. Notice the words of James 5 in verse 16. James 5, 16. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Intimacy. We are to be close to one another. Part of that closeness is bearing our soul. We are to confess our trespasses to one another. We can help one another. More than likely, there isn't anything that I'm going through but what a brother or sister has not gone through how did you get through it? How did you cope with it? Help me. We're not to live in isolation as Christians. Our relationship to one another should be characterized by intimacy as well. But moving on before that stupid buzzer comes online, verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, I will give to you. This is the element of Christian love that is initiative. 
initiative. We are also to consider the other as better than self. We are to take the initiative in expressing our love. Well, I would be willing to forgive brother if, uh, if, if he would just step up and say, I'm sorry. I know I'm wrong. I'll do it if he'll, if he'll do it. Christian love uh, means that you take the initiative. Wouldn't it be great if everybody just had that attitude? There wouldn't be this waiting around for the other one to take the first step. You might even come to do it at the same time. Uh, Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. Familiar reading. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Notice. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. So initiative, part of Christian love and our relationship to one another, we need to take the initiative to make sure that our relationship is what it should be. And then, of course, beyond just this uh, initiative among ourselves, uh, it goes without saying, is our consideration for the lost of the world. We are to take the initiative in taking the great commandment to them, the gospel plan of salvation to a lost and dying world. And then very quickly, verse 16, the fourth element of Christian love is productiveness. Productiveness. Notice again, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And so Jesus' love for the apostles really is seen as the source of their effectiveness. Just think about it. This group, this small, uh, timid band that abandoned Jesus in the garden and fled from his enemies, and who just recently also cowered in the upper room after the resurrection, made convincing witnesses. This same timid group, after they realized what Jesus had done, carried out the Great Commission, and they were productive. So we too are to encourage one another to protect productiveness in the Lord. Let's end by looking at Hebrews 10, verses 24 through 25. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. And this is in the context, of course, of our productiveness, this element of Christian love for one another and our relationship to one another as Christians. The apostle writes, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. We are to stir one another up. You need to stir me up to do more 
to do more than I am uh, doing, to stir me up to help me to fulfill my potential, my uh, possibilities in Christ. Stir me up and I you. Uh, brother, let's, uh, why don't we do this together? Let's, let's get out here and see what we can do. You get the idea. This is an element of Christian love relative to our relationship to one another. Helping one another to be more productive. Not only are we to be intimate and share our, confess our trespasses to one another, but we are to stir one another up to love and good works. And thus is our relationship seen in one another as Christ would have it. So we're still in John 15. The Lord willing, we will finish up uh, this next week. We'll look at the third category, and that is relationship of the Christian to the world. Uh, And that's uh, in verses 18 through 27. Thank you so much for your attention.